Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Colbert Report, Countdown, Ring of Fire, The Rachel Maddow Show, and Bill Maher. Here's another story. Uh, remember how we were talking about secession and Texas was uh, thinking about it and then a gubernatorial candidate in Georgia uh, talked about uh, possibly seceding from the Union? Well, it's picked up steam. Uh, they have uncovered uh, at uh, Brian uh, Boitler, I think, did a Talking Points memo um, that uh, Georgia has already passed a resolution, 43 to 1, saying, uh, yes, uh, the U.S. government better watch itself if it passes certain laws that we don't think are right, you know, uh, that would, uh, the, the right remedy would be, quote unquote, nullification. Nullification of the Constitution. And they say it doesn't only apply to Georgia, but it would apply to the United States of America. So if they pass a law that Georgia feels is not right, they think that it would nullify the entire Union. And then in order to put the Union back together, that all the states would have to have a three-quarters vote to get back into the union. I love how they pass this in Georgia, like as if like Obama or any other president, Republican or Democrat, is going to be, oh, yeah, good point. We better not pass any nullification laws. Yeah. And by the way, so what are these laws that might nullify the entire union? Well, uh, they have an example for you, so don't worry. Uh, quote, further infringements on the right to keep and bear arms, including prohibitions of type or quantity of arms or ammunition and boom the union disappears so if you try to limit arms in any way in quantity or the kind of arms so if you said for example you know what rpgs are not allowed in america you can't buy a rocket propelled grenade right uh... No, you just nullified the union i hope you're happy now okay now we're gonna need three quarters of vote for all the states to get back in i love how broad they are so that passed forty three to one in the georgia state senate uh, and, you know, I thought maybe it was a joke because they went on April 1st. But I don't, it turns out they're not alone. It turns out so South Dakota did a similar resolution that passed 51 to 18. And in Oklahoma, their version passed the State House 83 to 13 and passed the State Senate 25 to 17. These guys aren't kidding. And this is unbelievable, man. And, and secession uh, spreads. How long before we have a real problem in America again? Come on. If the liberals had talked about secession during Bush years for, name it, California or a city like San Francisco or Berkeley or Massachusetts, oh, imagine what O'Reilly would have said. <laughs> so uh, these guys are, I mean, they know how to make clowns of themselves. They really do.
Republican blogger and the daughter of John McCain. I wonder if her dad has figured out what channel her blog is on. Please welcome Megan McCain. Please, please. Now you should. I should stand for you. You shouldn't thank stand you for, for me. Thank you for having me. But my pleasure. Let me see the rock on that hand. Oh, thank you. Look at that. Present. That is. You could. You could deck me with that. Oh, it's it's CC Sky. If you want to buy it for your wife. Are you selling? Is this? Are we doing? <laughs> are we doing QVC right now? Because I'm willing. Now, um, I gotta. I gotta address something right away. This is the elephant in the room. Um, on your Twitter feed, you wrote, "My friend Val thinks." I should lick Stephen Colbert's face tomorrow on the show. What do we think? First of all, um, I'd love to thank your friend Val. Is Val here? No, Val is in L.A., and she's a huge fan of yours, and she was like, just go on a show and lick his face. Lick his face, just do that. But you are a happily married man, and I'm a lady. Yeah, but it's just a face. It's just my face. (laughs) And I quit... I went to the trouble of having myself flavored. I'm teriyaki and chipotle. Maybe later. Maybe later. Okay, sounds fantastic. Now, you now you you are you are uh, the the daughter of Senator John McCain, and you describe yourself. I don't make sure I get this right. You're you're pro-sex, pro-life, and pro-gay marriage. Yes. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna turn you into a Republican before this interview. <laughs> What, how can, what do you mean pro-sex? Republicans, how do they normally reproduce? Through mitosis? <laughs> a firm handshake right before bedtime? I wrote an article saying I'm pro-sex because after um, Bristol Palin went on her abstinence tour, mm-hmm. I think that it is not realistic for this generation of people to be just plain abstinence. I think we need to have sex education with condoms and birth control, et cetera, et cetera. And I think if the Republican Party just says abstinence only is the only way to be, then we're going to lose a lot of young voters. And I think I would never want to practice anything I didn't preach and <laughs> now, okay. it's a family show hold on but you're also pro-gay marriage my I mean, father's gonna watch that god <laughs> I don't think he watches this show I don't think he would watch the show even to see you um, um, he's a busy man that's why obviously I'm a I'm a fan, and we have a relationship. But, um, uh, but, but President Obama is not even pro-gay marriage. No, he's not. Even you're, you're more, you're more liberal than President Obama. Is that, is that I'm how liberal. you see the future of the Republican Party going? I'm liberal on social issues, and I do believe that the Republican Party can be a safe place for the gay community. President Obama said he was going to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I think me and a lot of people are still waiting for that. And the Democratic Party isn't necessarily a better place for the gay community than the Republican Party is. And I think if you go to the basic beliefs of the Republican Party, keeping government out of your life, why can't that include marriage? Because, because, because the government must protect the sanctity of marriage, okay? Whenever the word sanctity is involved in something, I believe the government should be involved. I don't understand that argument. What are we, I mean, what exactly is going to hurt marriage? What's hurting marriage? If a gay person gets married, then what's the incentive for me to get married? (laughs) Okay, why wouldn't I just go get gay married? I am, you know, Okay, (laughs) hanging out with guys is great. If I could make that legal... 
I'm a lot more religious than I let on. I have a great relationship with God, and I was raised to love people and not judge people, and I think that if two people fall in love, they should have the option to get married just like I can. Okay, can, can the GOP... Uh, you're, you're, what are you, you're 24? 24, okay. Can the GOP attract the youth vote? Yes, I mean, they've tried definitely. Twittering and Facebooking, and I think Lindsey Graham now wears those little Healy roller skate <laughs> shoes around the floors of the Senate. Yeah. What, what can they do to get to get the young vote? I think if you concentrate on technology like Twitter and MySpace and Facebook, you're just going to lose because we're not going to win that game. I think we have to concentrate on the message and the right politician. And I don't believe Twittering is going to make anyone think the Republican Party is cooler at all. <laughs> they are cool, though. Yes, they are. And I believe... They're, so, they're, they're, they're actually hep. <laughs> I believe that the Republican Party is an awesome party to be a part of. I'm proud to be a Republican. But I was inspired by my father, and I was on the road for two years. And I got to meet the most legendary, intelligent Republicans in this party. And not everybody gets that opportunity. So all I'm trying to say is it can be a party for a 24-year-old pro-sex woman. It can be. I just think that we have people that are in this party that are hijacking it and trying to make it even more extreme. i got to tell you, the, when, when, when you say pro-sex woman, I think the Republicans' numbers go north. Oh one last thing, one last thing. You were quoted as saying, Sarah Palin is the only part of the campaign that I won't comment on publicly. Would you care to comment on that publicly? No. Also, oh, there are two things you won't comment on publicly. No. Thank you so much Thank for joining for us. Megan McCain from the Daily Beast. special meeting next week is, reports Roger Simon today at Politico.com, expected to adopt a resolution requiring its membership to refer to the other guys as the, quote, Democrat Socialist Party. This on the heels of their brilliant success trying to rebrand the Democratic Party as the Democrat Party in 2001, which not only did not keep the Democrats out of the White House, but which still hasn't achieved 100% success inside the Republican Party. Well, I guess the Democratic Pro Party committed to satisfying the left of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has consistently tried to redistribute income. This is being done essentially to appease a certain element of the Democratic Party. Those are all since my birthday this year. The Democrat Socialist Party. Since the election, the Republicans seem to have been doing whatever has just popped into one of their leaders' heads. The idea-generating talent of Donald Trump, say, combined with the thorough planning and foresight of the Octomom. The Democrat Socialist Party. 
There are apparently 55 countries right now with parties with names that are some combination of Democrat, Democratic, Social, and Socialists, from Afghanistan to Azerbaijan, from Great Britain to Gibraltar, from the Hong Kong League of Social Democrats to the Party of Bulgarian Social Democrats. And all 55 in English, or in their English translations, are known in that order. Social Democrats. The RNC does not want that built-in advantage of familiarity. They want Democrat Socialists. Genius, I tell you. Genius. And this just gets better and better. A Pew Research survey last month indicated a dramatic increase in the number of people for whom that word socialist is sticking to President Obama. Last September it was six. In February it was 13. Last month it was 20. 20% 20 of Americans are using the word socialist to describe Obama? No wonder the Republicans are doing this. It's genius. Genius, I tell you. No. Not percent. 20 people. Let's look at the survey again. How often people describe Obama with the word socialist? Last September, it was six people out of 629 polled. In February, it was 13 people out of 620. Last month, it was 20 people out of 742. 20 people. 2.7%. Brilliant. The Democrat Socialist Party, the choice of nearly three out of every 100 Americans. Wait, it gets worse still. Rasmussen, polling done by the people who founded then bailed out early on ESPN. Rasmussen polling, now done generally for and shaped by Rupert Murdoch. Rasmussen actually asked Americans early last month what they thought of socialism. Oh, for God's sake, only 53% say capitalism is better than socialism. 20% prefer socialism. 27% aren't sure which. And the younger voters, adults under 30, favor capitalism, but only by 37 to 33, 30% undecided. A question for Michael Steele or Shelby Steele or Steely Dan or whoever's running the GOP this week. Do you guys read these polls? I mean, we got them off the Internet for free. The word socialist is not sticking, and even when it does, extraordinarily large numbers of Americans think it's a compliment. Younger voters, including the people who may still be voting in the presidential election of 2072, think it's a toss-up. So, of course, try to portray your opponents as the Democrat Socialist Party. Well, this is what this is about, of course. The Hugo Chavez handshake. The effort to portray Obama as foreign, un-American, sympathetic to strange cultures and ideas. The one the Republicans rolled out during the campaign. The reason that at this moment, John McCain is the president of the United States. Oops. Anyway, you've seen the Chavez poll numbers, right? CNN polling end of last month. Republican Party, 39% favorability in this country. The unfavorable score for the Republicans in this country, 55. CNN polling beginning of last month. Venezuela, 42% favorability in this country. Their unfavorable score is 54. Venezuela, home of an actual socialist strongman, is more popular in the United States than the opposition party in the United States is popular in the United States. The Democrat Socialist Party. I am beginning to think I understand what's happening here. It is a story of political intrigue, even scandal, that is unmatched, if it's correct, in our nation's long history. The Republicans have now gotten so turned around that Pete Hoekstra and Lamar Alexander, they're now trying to bait the Democrats into full-scale investigations of torture, the kind the Democrats wouldn't dare do without Republican support. The Republicans blast Obama's stimulus plan, and John Boehner presents their own version. There are no numbers in it. 
Arlen Specter bailed out of the GOP. Joe the Plumber bailed out of the GOP. Their last vice presidential candidate couldn't define the Bush doctrine. And her daughter, an unmarried teenage mother who, after giving birth and splitting with the father, is now trying to convince people that abstinence works, even though it appears in her case to desperately not have worked. There's a congresswoman who can't stop talking, who called the famous Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act the Hoot-Smalley Tariff Act. There's a nutbag on TV who uses a teleprompter who ripped the president for using a teleprompter, apparently unaware of the irony therein that that means they both use teleprompters. The chairman of the party had to grovel for forgiveness from a radio announcer. A congressman from Georgia had to grovel for forgiveness from a radio announcer while on the radio announcer's show. The radio announcer is trying to expel John McCain, John McCain's daughter, Colin Powell, and countless others from the party. And the Republican governor of Texas and Republicans in dozens of other states are actually proposing secession as a rallying point for the party. In other words, the GOP could take back America by leaving it. And now they want to rename the Democrats the Democrats Socialists. It's genius. Genius, I tell you. This mass madness, this cascade of rookie mistakes, this seemingly deliberate narrowing of the Republicans into a third party, this can all have only one possible explanation. They're all Democratic agents. You heard me. Cheney, a Democrat. Boehner, Democrat. Palin, Democrat. Steele, Democrat. Bachman, Democrat. Limbaugh, big fat Democrat. You got another explanation? Steele said, even when he seems to be making a gaffe, there's a secret strategy behind it. Of course there is. I mean, maybe they aren't Democrats. Maybe they think they can simply get the Republican Party absorbed by the Democrats in a kind of Trojan horse deal and then take over from the inside. But even that would be too complicated. And compared to their recent uninterrupted sequence of boneheaded brainstorms, it would be too good. They're moles, turncoats, spies, sellouts, political traitors. They have to be. They can't be that stupid. Antonio, back in the 1960s, the GOP ran a candidate that was so out of touch with society and so full of some of the worst ideas in political history that he lost the 1964 election in the biggest landslide ever. But Barry Goldwater's legacy is still alive in the GOP, and many believe that it was his right-wing fringe ideas that helped boost Ronald Reagan into the White House. But today, the Republican Party is so desperate for a new direction that they're trying to resurrect the failed Goldwater ideas to breathe new life into their party. Joining me now to talk about why resurrecting Goldwater is the worst idea the GOP could have is Rick Perlstein, author of the book Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmaking of the American Consensus. Rick, you say in your book that the tragedy of Barry Goldwater is also, in a sense, the tragedy of the American conservative movement. What did you mean by that? I said that? Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's interesting. Well, I wrote the book, of course, in, in it, it came out in 2001. It was out of print for a while. This is a reprint. Right. That's, that's very interesting. And by, that, by the way, by the way, a great book. The reason I thought that was such an interesting statement is because it was almost like you were soothsayer. Yeah. I, I looked at this. I said, my God, he wrote it back then, and he called it. I mean, it's exactly what's unfolding in 2009. Well, I can tell you what I think the tragedy of, of Barry Goldwater is. I mean, it's it's basically the idea that, uh, you know, Americans can do it alone and pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. I mean, the tragedy of Barry Goldwater is uh, that he was fundamentally dishonest with himself about uh, his own family's prosperity. I mean, one of the things I write about in the book is, you know, he, I, I quote him saying, you know, when we were, when my family was, you know, pioneering in Arizona or whatever he was, you know, saying, mm-hmm. uh, that we never knew the federal government. Yeah. And I say that the Goldwater family's success actually came from knowing the federal government intimately. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me ask you something. One thing that you talk about, it is just a. By, by the way, this is a very well written book. This is something, you know. My God, what is? It's it's seven hundred pages, but it reads it reads you know so well because it's such an interesting story. But the theme through there is you talk about the the, the real goal. Uh, was is not a Barry Goldwater goal. It wasn't a, a Ronald Reagan goal. There's always been this goal to sabotage the modern state. And you talk about as early as 1928, you had people that were on that same uh, that same path. You know that we're we're a country we we should sabotage the the government. Yes, uh, that actually the, the the quote from 1928 that I like to use is. A fantastic one that my friend Tom Frank, who many listeners know, the author of What's the Matter with mm-hmm, Kansas sure, and the Wrecking Crew, mm-hmm. he came up with a great quote from this guy who was the head of the Chamber of Commerce, always a very conservative organization in 1928. And he said, the best public servant is the worst one. Mm-hmm. And by that, he meant that uh, a good public servant, a good good, good government employee uh, who runs a good, efficient government is the enemy of basically the rapacious businessman who you know wants to make money on the backs of the people and not be responsible and accountable for his actions. Yeah, and so that that is the theme that's really been rolled out by. It's really it, it's the only thing that I can really identify that the conservatives have ever brought. To, that's the to, continuity, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's all these uh, shifts and all these different personnel and all these different emphases. That's the continuity. Well, I, I'll tell you one. Th- okay, so they rolled it out with they rolled it out with Barry Goldwater, and he it was the most overwhelming defeat in the history of American presidential elections. Uh, uh, LBJ won, I think it was sixty two percent, something like the popular vote, some somewhere around nineteen sixty four. Uh, the number is sixty one, sixty two percent. I mean, it was an overwhelming. Like Goldwater got swamped. Yes. Yeah. So why did Reagan win in nineteen eighty with the same platform? Okay. Basically? Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Yeah. What happened? It's that's the big question of American history, and it's kind of something I've been worrying, you know, in that book, and then my next book, Nixon Land, and the one I'm working on now, which is going to be about nineteen seventy three to nineteen eighty. You know, a big part of it is that after that Barry Goldwater defeat, you know, as I show in Nixon Land, mm-hmm. uh, when it looked like America was going to kind of cruise along on a liberal course, you know, until the cows came home, uh, suddenly this mood of cultural panic set in. And you did see things like riots and anti-war movements and changes in sexual mores and things like that. Mm. And the Republicans, the corporate folks, took took really skilled advantage of um, the the anger 
that lots of ordinary white middle class Americans felt at these at these disruptions and used it to pursue a basically uh, anti middle class agenda. And uh, you know, Barry Goldwater was you know, a prophet without a hunter, right? I mean, he was the guy who was trying to get that across. But without the 60s having happened, he couldn't really do it. But yeah. what happened in uh, his campaign, you know, basically which, you know, started the first people try to draft him for president in, you know, 1959 and put together that book, Conscience of a Conservative, what happened in the Goldwater campaigns was that they built the infrastructure to do it later. Yeah. Uh, you know, one good thing about the infrastructure is this. They're old. They're dying. They're passing mm. away. I mean, it, it really is true. So I saw a, a wonderful piece on that that is the aging baby boomers. You, you talk about in this book, and I, I love the way that you said, you know, there were the there were the people who felt uh, there were the, the younger generation in the 60s that really they, they snapped this conscious of the conservative off the shelves right, exactly. in colleges. And, uh, you know, as you put it, they, they did it at the same time they pulled Catcher of the Rye, the Catcher in the Rye off the shelf. They pulled this book off. And, and, and you had young people that were that really, uh, you know, they could have gone either way. They could have said, well, I, I kind of like the idea of being a progressive. But they said this is something different. Those people, though, are, that's the party. I mean, that is the, that's the last holdout of the Republican Party right now. I mean. If you really take a look at it, I, that, that's why I feel like I don't I don't know that this was ever sustainable. Uh, what what do you think? I mean, this this idea was I don't know this ever sustainable. Well, I, the, wow, there's a lot there's a lot packed into that. I mean, what what happened when when kids picked up Conscience of a Conservative in 1960, you know, college kids, right? Was that they were responding to the same set of anxieties and the same feelings of alienation that would later drive people to join the civil rights movement and then you left. And that was their alienation at the kind of coldness, rationality, bureaucracy, uh, um, uh, impersonality of uh, American society. And, and Goldwater spoke to that actually quite eloquently. And that's, you know, sort of the most uh, stirring part of the conservative message, the idea of individualism and the idea that there's a, a state that wants to turn you into a faceless number. Um, of course, the tragic flaw of that is that um, you know most people's daily experience of stultifying bureaucracies that uh, destroy their lives are in fact corporate ones, not government ones. Just open your window and follow your memory upstream to the meadow in the mountain where we counted every fall. General Eric Holder got grilled on Capitol Hill by Republicans, hyping the idea that closing Guantanamo will essentially result in every American family being mailed their very own terrorist to take care of. With regard to those who you would describe as terrorists, we would not 
bring them into this country and release them. Anybody who we consider to be a terrorist. Paramount in our concern is the safety of the American people. We are not going to put at risk the safety of the people of this country. Despite those assurances, the Republican Party has decided that the closing Guantanamo is dangerous talking point is a real political winner. Not only questioning the attorney general about it at length, but also holding a House Republican press conference on the subject and, and having Senate Republicans release this remarkable video. I have ordered the closing of the detention center at Guantanamo Bay. The challenges in closing Guantanamo are complex. Where would dangerous detainees like accused 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed go? Go. Military bases like MCAS Miramar or Camp Pendleton. To the Navy base at Charleston, South Carolina. From Guantanamo Bay to Alexandria, Virginia. Moving those terrorists to Kansas? Not on my watch. Scary, isn't it? Listening to that generates the feeling of being scared. And generating that feeling, playing that scary song, Oh Fortuna, right? And, and cutting the visuals that way, making an audience feel fear, that is a cheap and easy way of encouraging an audience to overlook the abject stupidity of the argument that is being made. This point is made better, actually, by parody, by Hillzoy at the Washington Monthly, than I could ever make it by explanation. Keep criminals out of America, Mr. President. And while you're at it, we here at The Rachel Maddow Show have a couple of other dangerous items that you need to address. Nails. They are everywhere in America. They're small, they're scary, they're sharp, they sometimes get rusty. Of course, they're not nearly as scary as another scourge that is threatening our country. Napping is insidious. It is everywhere. It's in Congress, it's in the White House, it's in cabinet meetings. Napping. If Charles Manson and Omar Abdelrahman, the blind sheik, and Eric Rudolph, and Timothy McVeigh, and his accomplice, and the Unabomber, and Ted Bundy, and Richard Reed can be incarcerated in the United States, so can other bad guys. Republicans may want to keep Guantanamo going, but the idea that it has to stay open because we as a country are incapable of incarcerating anyone, that argument is absurd. That said, the idea that anything can be made scary by putting it to this music is conclusively proven true.
author and historian Rick Perlstein about how the GOP is so desperate for a new direction for their party that they're digging up the failed and forgotten policies of one of the worst politicians in history, Barry Goldwater. The, the thing I like about this book, Rick, it is almost like you're reading tea leaves. Uh, you know, when you when you think about when you wrote this book, and you talked about where where what are the tra- you know what are the trajectories now. And we take a look where we are in 2009, and it's a party that is in absolute disarray. And, of course, now I said before the break that I didn't think it was sustainable. I don't know that you bought into that. I'm not suggesting that you should. But I'm, I'm telling you. No, I think you're right. But, but what I'm looking at now is I'm looking at the age. It's the, it's, it's the age factor. I mean, how else do you get around it? Look, you've got 18 to 30-year-olds that are not buying. You know, they're not. They may be picking the catcher of the rye uh, up and reading it, but they're not, they're not reading Conscious of the Conservative. That's right. Damn sure. And so, so the point is, what are they left with? Look, here, here's something that, and I think there were, I think you, very even-handedly handled Barry Goldwater. I think um, it, it would have been difficult for me to do as even-handedly as you did it, but I, I thought that that was that's a great tribute to your ability to write. But you know, here's a guy that said that uh, he, there, there's a great quote. He he was attacking uh, Eisenhower. He said uh, Eisenhower was this. <laughs> was the siren song of socialism and, yeah. and, that, and that the poor deserve their station and that the fact that most people have no skills or have no education uh, uh, are for the same reason they have low intelligence, low ambition, that that's why they fail in our society. I mean, right. this pretty is the guy who ran for president. Yeah, it's pretty damn naked. But and then again, you know, the, the bitter enders in the Republican Party are basically left with people with that very try an unappealing message. Now, the interesting thing about writing this book, Mike, in 2001, is that uh, what uh, the, the progressives who read it, uh, getting into the 2002-2003 period, and took it as an inspiration for taking back the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. In other words, the, 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 the idea... Movement. Yeah, the movement was to build at grassroots. Basically, that's where you say they came from. I mean, it was... You know, just a slow. Uh... It was a it was a Wall Street based party. It was a country club party, and they got reinvigorated by uh, largely young people who decided that um, the people in Washington running the Republican Party weren't responsive to the grassroots. And a lot of people read that in 2003, and these were the people who got involved in the Howard Dean campaign, and these were the people who got involved in Move On. And uh, I, I was very gratified. Unfortunately, uh, they, they read it. They, they, they started reading it a little too late. And it had it was by the time they had gone out of print. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very gratified all the time to, to have liberal activists, you know, yeah. uh, progressive activists, tell me that they were inspired by the story that you don't have to accept your political party the way it is. Right, that you right. can take it over from the grassroots and make it responsive to ideological pleasure. Ideological pressure is what I meant right. to say. One but thing, ideological pleasure is a good thing too. It's <laughs> a good term. Look, one thing that you had to have though is you had to have the you had to have the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, Goldwater, yeah, yeah, Goldwater was, I guess, that conservative vehicle. Ronald Reagan really was more. But you look at the people that were behind all that. I mean, William F. Buckley, Brent Bozell, uh, Pat Mannion. Th- these are people that really drove in, in, in. You know, to their credit, stuck with it. They believed right. that this was they had possible. a long term goal. Yeah. Yeah, William Rusher, William Rusher, the the, the um, publisher of National Review, is one of the characters in the books. Mm-hmm. After uh, Nixon was nominated in 1960 instead of Goldwater, and they thought Nixon was too liberal, and Nixon made all these concessions on, oh my God, civil rights, da 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 da, Nelson mm-hmm. Rockefeller. 
he said, uh, well, the catacombs were good enough for the Christians. And that we're willing to go underground and work for the long term. Yeah. And that has been the real uh, keynote yeah. of uh, the Republican institution building, is this willingness to kind of make ideological, institutional, sociological, uh, political investments that could pay off yeah. 20, 30, 40 years later. Look, so, so if I distill a couple of things uh, in this really well-written book, it is that Timing was important, first of all. I mean, you had to have the right time. You had to have the 60s. You had to have that that thing. You had to have the character. You had to have a Ronald Reagan that was delivering the message. Goldwater was not the guy to deliver the message, was he? No, he was a very reluctant candidate. Uh, My favorite story about that is, um, you know, he 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 had a very... Hardcore group of uh, fanatical diehard supporters when he ran for president who'd do anything for him. They'd bleed for him, you know. Mm-hmm. They, they, they uprooted their lives for him. And one of them was a guy who, who went from Goldwater campaign event to campaign event sent, selling a product called Goldwater Soda. <laughs> and Barry Goldwater, the reluctant candidate, the guy who never wanted to run for president, yeah. uh, took a sip of it in front of the TV cameras, you know, photo <laughs> opportunity, and said, this tastes like piss. I wouldn't drink it with gin. <laughs> this is not the kind of guy you want no. running your presidential campaign. Yeah, you, there's a, there's a place you ha- you talk about the fact that Goldwater had to give you know an important speech, his acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention, and you know he's he, he makes a statement extremism. Yeah, you know, is the defense of liberty? Then it's no vice. That had to scare the hell out of his handlers, didn't it? It, it, it's, it. Uh, Richard Nixon said he got sick to his stomach when he heard that. <laughs> One of his handlers was a guy named Cliff White, the guy who delivered him the nomination. He was in the, he was in the, the trailer outside, and he said he just like you know turned away in disgust. And uh, but that was Barry Goldwater, and you know, kind of one of his admirable traits, you know, as a person, was that he didn't care who he angered. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, that doesn't necessarily make you the most effective leader of. No, it may, may make you a great TV pundit, <laughs> but it's not something you want to do. He would have been great. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> yeah, he'd have been. Oh, maybe that was his true calling. Yeah, yeah, Pat Buchanan type. So, so what? Do you, what is your call? Do the, I guess they have to go back into the catacombs for a while, and Republicans have to realize they're down there. Right. Well, I mean, I think conservatism is just an utter failure. I mean, smoking ruins the idea that you can create progress in America by, you know, beating back uh, the state and the civil service and uh, the regulatory role is, you know, just a failed idea. So conservatism is 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 uh, hopefully going to be just kind of a remnant rump group for the rest of. You know our time, Republicans. Like the Whig, to, remember the the Whig Party. You know the Whig which, Party that disappeared. I think the conservatives are going to be like the Whig Party. Yeah. The Republicans, by the same, uh, by by another token, have to rethink their ideology and they have to, you know, listen to the people for God's sake. Yeah. They, they, they no longer know how to speak American, and uh, you know they're <laughs> speaking what Limbaugh. You know. Rick Pearlstein, just great work as usual. I mean, I just really love having you on. I love I love your work, and I, this, this is particularly interesting to me because I swear to God it's, it's like you were you were looking into a crystal ball and you called it in this book thanks a lot for joining me thanks brother oh, bye bye it can be impractical so can you tell me why every version of the events shown
Something from Richard Posner, you know who he is? He's a, a true intellectual conservative, I think. He was a Reagan-appointed appellate judge. And he said uh, that by the fall of 2008, the face of the Republican Party had become Sarah Palin and Joe the Plumber. Conservative intellectuals had no party. And he cited, he said, the inanity of trying to substitute will for intellect, as in the denial of global warming the use of religious criteria in the selection of public officials, the neglect of management and expertise in government. Uh, and I would ask this question, as he does, I think some people feel that the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans now is not ideological so much as intellectual. And that they just Nancy seem like Pelosi the party... Is an example of this? <laughs> well, Nancy Pelosi doesn't deny global warming. You know, it Nor just did George, or George Bush actually did get on board with climate change. Uh, he was willing to pursue. He, he, he got on board with it, advancing it and accelerating it, but that was well, not it. But with the concept of it, he was the, not a denier. At the end of the day, he recognized it existed. I would hardly say that's getting on board after he fought it for seven years, and he didn't do anything about it. He just said, okay, you got me. It exists. Well, the, Repu now, but the Republican argument before was it's a myth, it's a lie, it's a liberal conspiracy, it's a media conspiracy that doesn't exist. And now the Republican argument is it's too late. Oh, gee, it was actually happening all that time. Now it's too late to actually do anything about it, so why should we change? But on, on the larger point of, uh, that uh, Judge Posner raised, clearly the Republicans were worn out coming into the 2008 election. And part of that is just eight years is a long time. And part of that is that those eight years felt like 80 years. <laughs> you know, partly, for, partly for, for reasons that George Bush did, partly for things totally beyond his control. I mean, the only thing that didn't happen was plagues of locusts. You know, it was two <laughs> wars, you know, hurricanes. But, but more, wait, 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 wait. Two wait, wait no, 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 wait a second. Wait, that, wait, two at, wars, at, one that was entirely optional at, and, and the result, from the war in Afghanistan. And, and the result is a party chews itself up. They, they use up their resources, they get tired, and then they have to have a period in the wilderness and they have to rebuild. And that, that happens to Democrats, it happens to Republicans. It's part of the cyclical... Right, but, but, but to the point I was making, we put together a little montage of some Republican voices and leaders on global warming, a little something we call the GOP science fair. Just look, it only takes 30 seconds. You'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> So if we decrease the use of carbon dioxide, are we not taking away plant food from the atmosphere? Carbon dioxide is natural. It is not harmful. It is a part of Earth's life cycle. Uh, every cow in the world, uh, you know, when they do what they do, you've got more carbon dioxide. Carbon, carbon dioxide is basically this. <gasps> Look how much pollution I just put out. The earth will end only when God declares it's time to be over. Uh, man will not destroy this earth. This earth will not be destroyed by a flood. 
I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to jab you here. I'm, this is just footage of the leaders of the party. Which is why they, they lost don't... the college-educated vote in 2008. Yeah, I mean... Republicans are having such problems with people who have brains. Yeah, I mean, to, th this guy, he's a leader in the party, and he thinks that cow farts <laughs> are CO2, and the other morons here think that breathing is the same thing as a coal-fired plant. Uh, you know, I, but, but let's look at the steps that Democrats are taking. We know that right now cap-and-trade has become extremely controversial among Democrats, that they don't necessarily want to be right. passing this tax and doubling electricity bills for the average American, when even some of them just say, is, is it climate change? Is it global warming? Is it man-made? Is it something that is sunspots? And they're not necessarily willing to gamble the American economy on this. So you pointed out Republicans and their opposition to this, but opposition to cap-and-trade is growing in the Democratic Party. But see, here's the problem with America right now. The cap-and-trade, which is the Democratic position, that should be your position. That's the conservative position on this. That's an intelligent position. I may not agree with it, but that's what their party should be saying, as opposed to, the world will end when God says. <laughs> you see, when one party has no position, then it's like, excuse me, you go watch Glenn Beck, let the adults work this out. <laughs> Am I wrong about that? Look, look. It, it's, it's, it's easy and it's fair game uh, to take commentators uh, and, and put them out well, there. Well, most of those were legislators. Most of those were legislators. House. But as, right, House, House legislators. The legislator. As the political cycle gets going, I mean, this is way early for the next presidential election. It's still very early to have any idea what the 2010 elections are going to be. You're going to see people get serious. You're going to see leaders emerge. And we will be talking about, in both parties, well, Obama is the incumbent and those leaders are in place, but the Republicans will have people vying for these seats and we'll be talking about them. We won't be talking about what the commentators well, say, and we won't be talking about what the backbenchers say. But are the Republicans just the rhythm of it. Yeah, I mean, seats when you guys are purging people and celebrating Arlen Specter's jump to the Democrats? Also, and, and that's, that's, like, that's not purging. That's not good riddance to Colin Powell. Like you guys are. That's having, not uh, Arlen Specter's not purging moderates. It's purging narcissists. Uh, you know, I've known Arlen Specter. Arlen Specter is my friend. Have a nice time dealing with him, okay? I don't like <laughs> He's in the Democratic Party. But, but, but you, I mean, you talk about the leaders will emerge. I assume one of them is going to be Newt Gingrich. He sounds like he's running. And from what I can tell from all the conservatives I talk to, they consider him a conservative. Let me read you his quote. He said, people don't elect presidents who tell them to sacrifice. They elect presidents who solve problems so they don't have to sacrifice. That strikes me as a very juvenile reading of reality. You know I, what? It, if you're going to solve problems, people are going to have to sacrifice. Presidents are not magicians, not even chocolate Jesus. Was, they, they cannot solve these problems without the help of the people. And what, that's his position. What we was saying, I, all we have to fear is fear itself, ducking the notion of sacrifice. I mean, you know, what Gingrich is saying there is, is that uh, Americans historically uh, go for leaders who say, uh, here's the problem, but I have the solution. But the and fear itself guy also well, said, no. when you ride alone, you ride with Hitler. Yeah. 
and no. asked us not to ride alone, asked us to make sacrifices. You guys got in eight years ago and but said the American yeah. way of life is the blessed way of life, and we're not going to change a goddamn thing, and eight years later, we're eight years deeper into the hole. You're not going to want to miss what we have available at the brand new Best of the Left store. You can get all of our great designs, including some cool retro ones that no one's ever seen before, on all kinds of great cafe press apparel and other fun items they have available. If you prefer a cafe press alternative, we got you covered. Check out everything we have available at our Print Fection store. Aside from all that fun stuff, we've got something really useful for you. We've just started a brand new podcast by mail service. So say you know someone, maybe even yourself, who loves this show or would love it, but they're just not tech savvy enough to do the whole podcasting thing. They couldn't download it every week, not going to listen online. Give them a podcast by mail subscription and they'll have the CDs of every edition sent right to their house every week. All this now available at the new store at bestoftheleft.com. All right, but so you understand how the Republicans run, Newt Gingrich has summarized it best. You know, we've been telling you on the show for how many weeks, months, years now that the whole party is based on fear and they want to do the fear-mongering, they want to scare the American people, but also, they themselves, they're afraid. They're a very, very scared, cowardly party. Now, don't take my word for it. Take Newt Gingrich's word for it. He's going to be on Meet the Press here with David Gregory, and he's going to admit it. Watch. The thing that I think motivates Cheney, uh, and I watched this firsthand after 9-11, is the shock of 9-11. The reality that his children and his grandchildren could die. That he has an obligation to America to take extra steps to keep us alive. And I think this was burned into him that day and the following day. And the realization, we have been caught totally off guard. Despite all the warnings of the 90s, we have been caught totally off guard. And so they did everything for seven and a half years. To, and they have a very simple principle. If you're in doubt, do what it takes to help America survive every time so that they consistently fell down on the side of being very tough about national security I think people should be afraid I think the lesson of 1993 the first time they bombed the World Trade Center was fear is probably appropriate I think the lesson of Kobar Towers where American servicemen were killed in Saudi Arabia was fear is probably appropriate I think the lesson of the two embassy bombings in East Africa was fear is probably appropriate I think the lesson of the coal being bombed in Yemen was fear is probably appropriate I'll tell you if you aren't a little bit afraid after 9-11 and 3,100 Americans killed inside the United States by an effort, if you weren't worried about the second wave attack that was designed to take out the biggest building in Los Angeles, right. I think that you, you are out of touch with the Wait, 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 Speaker Gingrich, you, you make the point about how Vice President Cheney felt personally, personal fear. And isn't President Obama's argument that fear as a basis of national security policy is not sustainable over time? How do you come up with a sustainable legal framework, a sustainable national security policy? Don't we elect leaders to transcend fear for lasting policy? Look, how much should you worry about something truly terrible happening to America? I belong to the wing that believes we live in an age when very few people using very dangerous weapons can cause incalculable damage. And I think we should take very strong steps to make sure that doesn't happen. Well, you know, God bless Gingrich's heart. He just admitted we... The Republicans are the party of cowards.
We're always afraid. We're afraid of Al-Qaeda. We're afraid of the Taliban. We're afraid of the terrorists. You know, fear is always appropriate. Fear is appropriate. How many times did he say it? Four times? Five times? Listen, Newt, there's a difference between being concerned and taking appropriate and strong action and being afraid. So when Al-Qaeda hits us, wherever it might be, we should be concerned and we should take appropriate and strong action. But we shouldn't be afraid. We should be like, oh my God, Al-Qaeda hit us. I'm personally afraid. Look at what he's saying about Cheney. He was personally afraid, afraid for his family, afraid for his grandchildren. And you know what that kind of fear brings out? It brings out panic. And that's exactly what he did. He panicked and he tried to give away American rights. Well, we should do spying on American citizens without court orders, even though that's against the Fourth Amendment. We should do torture. We should do all these things that are un-American. Why? Because Dick Cheney's a coward. And he's been a coward his whole life. Five deferments out of Vietnam. He said, oh, I was too busy. I couldn't go. He wants everybody else to fight the wars that he's too scared to fight. And now Newt Gingrich admits it. The Republican Party stands for cowardice. Well, thank you. I appreciate the note now we all know. Imagine, by the way, if a Democrat had, to say, had said the same thing. Let's say John Kerry, when he was running for president, had said, look, fear is appropriate. Fear is appropriate. Now, what do you think the Republicans would have done to him? They're like, oh, look at this guy. He thinks the appropriate reaction is fear and cowering from the terrorists. But that's exactly what Newt Gingrich is saying. No, the appropriate reaction is not fear. It is strong action, smart action, and figuring out what to do to counter these guys so that it doesn't happen again. But it is not to give away American rights, American principles, and what a lot of people fought for and died for to establish so that these cowards can go ahead and give it away. takes us to Marathon County, Wisconsin, and a man named Kevin Stevenson. A little more than two months ago, the local newspaper, the Wausau Daily Herald, printed his regular guest column in which he criticized Boss Limbaugh. Sadly, he wrote, today's politics is full of self-interest. Rush Limbaugh is not a politician. He does believe in conservatism and has a forum to express his views. You must admit that he has a large and loyal following. But so does Rachel Maddow as an extreme liberal. Both of these people need to shock to keep their ratings high. They are entertainers who earn their living by what they say, not what they accomplish. Republicans do not agree with all the president's policies, but no one wants him to fail as president. That's because when leaders fail, so do their followers. No good citizen wants the United States to fail. Some may think that he will fail, but this is far different from wanting him to fail. Last week, because of that article, Mr. Stevenson lost his job. Now, this isn't some instance of external revenge by Limbaugh. 
or Rachel, some back-channel retribution from Limbaugh's corporate master's clear-channel communications. This isn't a freedom of the press issue, and you can put down your calendar. You do not have to meet me at the barricades. This has nothing to do with violations of Mr. Stevenson's First Amendment rights to free speech. And that is all true because the job from which Mr. Stevenson was fired was that of spokesman for the Marathon County, Wisconsin Republican Party. And last Thursday, when that county party met, it, to quote Mr. Stevenson, got hostile and it got personal. They felt I was too moderate in what I was speaking and printing. The Marathon County Republicans, for reasons known only to themselves, dismissed their spokesman on a technicality about where he lived. And then the former county president and still local Republican treasurer blew the lid off that excuse. If the leadership had wanted a more moderate position, we would have let him continue, said Kevin Hermaning to the local paper. This is just part of what you're seeing nationwide, the fired Mr. Stevenson concluded. Party members know that I don't agree with Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh is hurting us more than helping us. The more you hear from Mr. Stevenson, the more apparent it becomes that he is exactly the kind of guy whom 20 years ago the Republicans would have embraced. Upon his firing, he issued a statement. The most imminent danger facing the Republican Party comes from within. A growing party embraces its differences and uses the strength of its differences in a positive manner. Differences should not be feared but embraced, as we as Americans are a mixture of diverse cultures with a rich history. The Republican Party is at a crossroads. Purging people who have differences from its ranks will ensure that it remains a minority party well into the future. The direction the Republican Party chooses, not the Democratic Party, will determine its fate. Purging, an ugly word, but the correct one. If you don't agree with the extremism of Limbaugh, you're out. Ask Arlen Specter, Michael Steele, Congressman Gingrey, John McCain, Roberta McCain, Megan McCain. And if you point out that it is extremism, one of the guys escorting you out the door will shout, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. The odds are pretty good that the screamer will know that it is Barry Goldwater he is quoting. The odds are also pretty good that the screamer will never have made that great intellectual leap to the realization that 110 days after Barry Goldwater uttered that immortal manifesto, he lost the election by 16 million votes and 434 of them in the Electoral College. The problem is, then and now, if you keep showing people the door, Sooner or later, there will be more people outside the door than inside it with you. And this brings us back to the hypothetical 167-year-old viewer who's saying, I warned Daniel Webster about this in 1852, and he didn't listen to me either. The Whig Party was half of the American two-party system. It rose to prominence by being the party of no in fierce opposition to the then-dominant Democrats. The Whigs managed to elect William Henry Harrison president and then Zachary Taylor. The party included them and Daniel Webster and the famous Senator Henry Clay and former and future presidents like John Quincy Adams, John Tyler, and Millard Fillmore. And as the 1850s began, the Whigs had an incredible advantage as well. The Democrats were descending into a pro-slavery position, whereupon the pro-slavery faction in the Whig party started to expel the anti-slavery Whigs. Then they put the squeeze on the Whigs who were merely neutral or moderate about slavery. It was a purge, a cleansing of those who were not conservative enough to be Whigs. So the local Whig party leader in Illinois quit the party. In fact, he quit politics. He went back to being a lawyer. His name was Abraham Lincoln. But the Whigs kept their party pure. Extremism in the defense of what they believed was liberty was no vice. And by 1860, the Whigs had no candidates. They didn't even hold a convention. Kevin Stevenson is not Abraham Lincoln, and ultra-conservative rage of today is not the issue of slavery, and the Republicans are not the Whigs. 
Not yet, anyway. But no organization, political or otherwise, collapses only from the top. Just as you have to screw it up nationally, so too do you have to unravel it down at the grassroots. As the firing of Mr. Stevenson by the Marathon County GOP suggests, the one area in which Republicans are firing on all cylinders is firing moderate Republicans. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, if everything is going to plan, as this show becomes available, I should be somewhere in the vicinity of Utah, and I should be heading north from there. Of course, it is a very big if when talking about uh, things going to plan on a big cross-country trip like this. Be sure to tune into our Twitter feed and follow along as I make my way across. I plan to be posting regularly along with uh, pictures and whatnot to let everyone know how the trip's going. In terms of the show, I just wanted to continue reminding everyone that we are up to consistently posting two episodes a week, so be sure to check your RSS feed regularly, or check the website, or better yet, sign up for our newsletter and be informed every time a new episode is posted. While you're on the website signing up for the newsletter, obviously you're going to want to check out our new store, including both uh, merchandise and apparel, including our new podcast by mail subscription, which clearly you should get for all of your technologically disadvantaged friends and relatives. I want to sincerely thank those of you who have been becoming members or donating to the show in order to support the new two-show-per-week format. The only way we can keep going at this rate is through the financial support of listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and you appreciate the fact that you're getting twice as much content now as you were before and you want for that to continue, I seriously encourage you to become a recurring donor on the website, become a member of the show, and donate as little as $5 a month. I can even do the quick math for you and tell you that that's less than a dollar a show. So that's it for today. Stay connected with us on Twitter and Facebook, as well as by subscribing to our newsletter. Get the show directly on your smartphone without syncing via Stitcher.com. And visit our show notes on the blog to find all the links to our sources and all the music used in this show. Coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name's Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every weekend and every Wednesday from bestoftheleft.com. Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor